Hello, survivalists. Welcome to the crux. My name is Tessa King. I am one of your hosts today. I am joined by my lovely sister and co-host, Casey McIntosh. (laughs) (laughs) Woohoo! Today, we're going to be talking about Ed and Kelly Molmer, who were on a backcountry ski trip in the Cabinet Mountains in Montana when they were separated in an accident that would leave them isolated and fighting for their lives. Sixteen-year-old Kelly Molmer and her father, Ed, had gone together on a father-daughter ski trip early February this year, 2021, so this is probably the most recent survival story that we have told. So current of you, Tessa. I know. I'm really up and up with these current events. I'm so impressed. You can't see, but I'm hair flipping right now. (laughs) So it was just a short trip to their home, which was in Bonners Ferry, Idaho. Uh, That's the northern part of the panhandle. Ed was a physician, well, he still is, and he had been backcountry skiing his whole life. He started as early as 14, where he grew up in Utah. He would ski with his dad. Ed Mulmer particularly uh, wanted to move to Idaho because of the mountains and the snow. When Kelly turned 14, Ed started to teach her how to backcountry ski as well, just like his father had done for him. Kelly had never taken an avalanche safety course Uh, So when they went together, Ed would carry a lot of the gear just to help with the whole uphill load. So the day they went backcountry skiing together, he had a majority of the food and water. This was just a one-day outing? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so essentially they were just trying to hike to the top of this mountain in the cabinets. For those of you who don't know how that would work, a lot of people will either drive or snowmobile to a trailhead and then either pack up their skis or will hike up using skins. And for those of you who don't know, those are just a sticky piece that will help you from sliding back down the mountain. Is there a better way of explaining that? <laughs> well, they're kind of like carpet, you yeah. know, on the bottom with the fibers going in the opposite direction of the snow. So it's every time you would be otherwise sliding back, those fibers are catching into the snow so you can basically just stand still and slide up because the fibers are going at that angle. So when you push your feet forward, the carpet, if you want to call it that, is flat. Mm-hmm. So you can slide forward, but you can't slide backwards. Yeah, well, it's like running your hand on the wrong side of a velvet jacket. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know the feeling. Uh, didn't you tell me where they got the idea to call them skins? Well, I mean, at one point, I think they actually were skins because, I mean, don't quote me on this, but people were using skins for skiing and accessing places where they could do hunting. Right. And, so, and I was thinking something along the line of seal skins is what I heard. Anyway, look it up. Get back to us, guys. It's not that important to the story. <laughs> but it's interesting. It is interesting. And I don't think a lot of people do backcountry skiing, even in our area. There are quite a few people who do it, but if you're not in a mountainous area, it's not really even an option for you. That's true. So these two had snowmobiled up to the road. They had their truck, and then they had their snowmobile. Had to use their snowmobile to get to the trailhead. They were headed up Angle Peak, 
which has a summit of 7,765 feet. It's pretty tall. It was around 3.30, and they were headed back down to their snowmobile, but there was a bit of a whiteout, and as they were making their way down the gentle slope, they thought maybe they saw a cornice. Do you know what a cornice is? Yeah, it's an area where the snow has been blown into kind of a a crispy and angled outcropping. It's almost like a um, a weather-created snow sculpture, if you will. Right. So Ed and Kelly were not really sure. They had tried to take the most gentle slope on the southwest side of the peak. Ed and Kelly typically map their route on a smartphone, but in their hurry to get down the mountain, Ed didn't check his map and ended up farther south. Kelly was the one who realized that there might be a cornice ahead of them. So the official Google definition of a wait, cornice. Wait, it doesn't say snow sculpture created by nature. Oh, in, oh, in I'm sorry. It does. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Google says a cornice is an overhanging mass of hardened snow at the edge of a mountain precipice. And then this article in the Spokesman Review said, snow cornices are windblown projections of snow that, true to the word's oldest meaning, jet over cliff edges, eventually curling down with gravity. They can be strong or weak. There isn't a great way of telling. The one thing in, not in dispute is that they are dangerous. Basically, if you end up on one, the whole thing can break off and you go off the cliff. I bet you can guess where this is going. Not somewhere good, that's for sure. What a cliffhanger, huh? <laughs> you have me on the, the edge of my seat right now, <laughs> Tessa. The whole reason they had decided to go this way and up this particular peak is because it was a long and mellow journey. It was unlikely to have an avalanche even on a high-risk day, and it was only about 20 to 25 degrees uphill. Ed says, it didn't make sense to me that there would be a cornice. He said that I scooted just a little forward and then I fell. Ed was using an app called Strava, which is a GPS system. So it helps you when you're out in the backcountry, you know where you are. Ed was able to determine that he fell about 760 feet. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And he lived. That's really wild. Bonkers. Luckily, it was not a continuous fall, which is probably part of the reason he lived. He said the biggest free fall was about 200 feet. Falling for that long is definitely a weird feeling, which is an interesting comment just because, remember, when we're talking about Julian Kopke, mm -hmm. how fast you actually fall from the sky. Yeah. Matter of seconds, and you're there. He still had his skis on, though, right? Mm -hmm. So that may have slowed him down a little bit. Yeah, maybe. Maybe other gear that he had, too. And, you know, he hit a few things on the way down, so. I can imagine just the distance that he fell would feel like forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody's fallen at some point in their lives, but that feeling of endless falling when you're not attached to parachute, it, it's got to be just like, a, I don't know, a mind-altering experience. So he really ended up being lucky because he only had a few broken vertebrae in his lower back. That's it. 
Kelly had watched her father go down and was convinced that she had just witnessed his death. That is wild. So she saw the cornice. Yeah, and she's like, hey, dad, that's a cornice. And he's like, that doesn't make sense. And then he went a little bit forward and bye-bye. Yeah, exactly. And if they had been watching the GPS, they would have known that they had gotten a little off track of Mm -hmm. what they had wanted to do. Yeah. So she's screaming his name to no response, and she curls up in a fetal position and starts to cry. And then she realizes they have self-service. And so she pulls out her phone and calls her dad and was shocked when he actually answers the Oh, phone. my gosh. I thought you were going to say that she was shocked to realize that she was still sitting on the cornice. Oh, my gosh. I hope she got off of it. <laughs> Get off of it. So, yeah, her dad, Ed, answers the phone. That is so crazy. And it's really windy. The weather's bad, so she's not able to understand really what he's saying, but... Basically, he was telling her that she needs to get back away from the cornice and to traverse right. He says to try to make her way back to the truck and call 911, most importantly. So not to dilute your story at all anymore than I've already done. But um, what time of day is this happening? 3.30 is when they turned around. Okay. So they had already spent the majority of the day out. And what was the date? In February okay. of this year. I was just curious about like, okay, nightfall is coming soon, you know? Right. Like exactly. rapidly approaching. Right. Because it probably gets dark not long after four o'clock. Yeah. Anyway, so Kelly followed his advice, skied away from the cornice and called 911. Thank goodness that they had cell phone service where they were. That's in and of itself a miracle. The 911 operator told Kelly to stay put which is very common advice in emergency situations. But she was conflicted because her dad had told her to move to get back to the truck. She had no mapping device and hardly any food because, remember, Ed had been carrying the majority of it. Which, you know, remember, she's 16, so I imagine myself at 16, and I probably would not be going unless my dad was carrying the majority of what Does we had. Does he still carry the majority of what you have? No, just teasing. <laughs> <laughs> if you um, got it, work it. <laughs> yeah. So not so great for Kelly. But she decided since she didn't know the terrain very well, she thought it would probably be unsafe for her to continue on or even try to find her dad on her own. I think this is a cool story because word gets out that Kelly and Ed are lost in their own community in Bonner's Ferry. And people know who they are. Yeah. Because he's a doctor, too. That's true. And Bonner's Ferry, for those of you who don't know, is a really rinky-dink little town. <laughs> Sup, Bonner's Ferry. All our fans there. <laughs> you you and Ennis. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, you and Ennis. We love you both. You're the best. Yeah, so Ed's friend, Kip Hartman, and... Kip's friend, Brad Fitchett, were familiar with the backcountry and snowmobiling in the area. They helped round some friends from Bonner's Ferry to help them put together a search committee to find Ed and Kelly. And they probably know this mountain relatively well, I would imagine. Yeah, and just just like I said, just from being out in the backcountry and doing a lot of snowmobiling, these rescuers started looking for Ed and Kelly about 8.30 p.m. Oh, no. Yeah, so that's about five hours after they had been separated. That's crazy. Yeah, and by the time they're there, there's about a foot of fresh snow. 
So this guy, Brad Fitchett, was quoted in the article saying, I thought, those poor people, I didn't think the odds of finding them alive were too good. Just because of exposure at that point. Absolutely. Meanwhile, Kelly was unsure of what to do. She didn't think that she'd be able to navigate to the truck 15 miles away. And so she decided to stay put, as I said earlier, to wait for that rescue team. Her dad was able to tell her on the phone to dig out a snow cave and get her out of the weather. Ed had done this too, and it really saved them, is what Brad Fitchett said. The tough thing, though, is when you build a snow cave, you're not visible. That's I guess true. not to say that she was visible anyway, but... Yeah, but it's, it's night, and it's cold, and they've been out in the elements all day. Kelly's in the fort, and she calls her mom. I think that's the weirdest thing, is to be able to have the technology to contact people, but still be stuck. Yeah. And the fact that her phone was still working at that point. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's just a day outing. So at this point, yeah. But I would be worried about draining the battery. Yeah. And then not being able to get to anyone. Kelly calls her mom and she said, I've never heard a more comforting sound than of my mom's voice. Piano playing in our home and my siblings in the background. Over the next 24 hours, when I sometimes contemplated giving up and laying in the snow to die, I remembered that phone call and how I wanted nothing more to be in my home again. Two Bear Air Rescue was contacted. So that is a helicopter rescue out of Montana. Air rescue was impossible at that particular time due to the foggy weather or that rat. So that's part of the reason all of this is taking so long. They couldn't just like go right in and get yeah. them. Search and rescue attempts on the ground had difficulty because they were unable to follow Ed's tracks on the path, and the path was littered with cliffs. They snowshoed seven miles and covered over 3,000 vertical feet. I think part of the reason it was so difficult as well is how much snow had fallen, mm -hmm. so it was hard to find where they had gone up. And this is like all at night. Yeah. Remember, they started at 8.30, so being out there for seven miles... Even if you're fast, I would say, you know, 20-minute miles. It's a long time to be out. Well, in, in potentially bad conditions in the middle of the night, you're putting yourself at risk just as a rescuer. And you have to watch out for the cliffs. So it's probably just slow going. Mm -hmm. Kelly woke up in the middle of the night, and she was much colder. She also noticed that she had stopped shivering or her teeth weren't clattering, mm. which is a bad sign. Because when you're really cold and you don't have the symptoms anymore, things are starting to set in. And after a full day of uphill skiing and soggy conditions, she was quoted saying, every, every single piece of clothing on my body was entirely soaked. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. And then she had also spent time building this snow fort. Anyway, so she starts going. She needs to get moving so she can warm up. And she said... I could feel water in my boots sloshing as I walked. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. I put my skis on my feet and left behind everything except for what I thought I would need for my attempt to get back to the truck. So this is the crazy thing and kind of touches base on what you had said a little bit earlier. When she was about 150 yards from the fort, she found search and rescue tracks from earlier in that night. Oh, my gosh. She learned later that they had gotten really close to her, and despite having her headlamp on and gear stuck in the snow, they had not seen her. 
So she was saying that she wished that she had been awake so she could have yelled and gotten their attention. But how crazy is that? It's just like you said, making a snow fort makes you less visible. It's kind of a double-edged sword, though. Exactly. I mean, it was kind of a necessary evil. Yep. Ed had also built a snow cave. He was mainly concerned about Kelly. He said, I told myself that she would be fine and that she's resourceful. But you can't help but think the whole time, too. That's just it. So he's just stuck in a snow fort, worried about his daughter. And I realize his injuries weren't as severe as they could have been. Mm -hmm. But I can't imagine that he was feeling all that great. Oh, and then to have to build a snow fort on top of that? Yeah. With broken vertebrae? Not fun. No. Rescuers had been out for hours and were getting exhausted. Around 5,600 feet, they found Ed's tracks and finally found his snow cave. That was by 5 a.m. the next morning. From that spot, they could see the spot where Kelly was supposed to be. They saw no sign of her, however. At that point, Kelly had been out and alone for 19 hours. That is insane. Yeah. Not so great. It's cold. She's totally wet. Doesn't have any food. They determined that they would indeed need a helicopter for a rescue as the ground crew was just totally spent, gassed from being out all day and all night. Mm -hmm. The helicopter was finally able to get to the area by 6.51 that same morning. They had to make several attempts because the weather was still overcast. Kelly was really severely hypothermic. She has no memory of that morning from around 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. So she was just kind of wandering back down the mountain on her skis? Yeah, yeah, she was trying to make her way back. And who knows at the point where she can't remember if she was lucid or... Probably not. Yeah, just going. They were able to send a crew member to the ground by 2.18 and hoist the crew member up with Kelly. But that's still a long time. The helicopter got there at 6.50 in the morning, and they weren't able to hoist her out of there until 2. Wow. And in the meantime, she was severely hypothermic. When they got her to the hospital, she had a core body temperature of 90 degrees. She suffered from some frostbite on her hands and feet. But that's it. That's amazing. Yeah. And Ed, as I said before, just had his compression fracture in his spine. Over 100 people were involved in this rescue. I hate to even ask this question or just put it out there, but think about the cost of a rescue like that. Well, definitely the helicopter business. Uh, but it does sound like a lot of this was Volunteer. just from yeah. the community, mm-hmm. which is the cool part. But yeah, being airlifted and all of that and probably expensive, yeah, and the resources. And Two Bear Air is pretty far away from the cabinets. Mm-hmm. Like they, would, they had to go a little bit. I mean, in the air, it's probably not as long as if you were to – definitely not as long as if you were going to drive there. But even so, it's not like it was a quick little flight. <laughs> So, Edward Mullimer said that what he should have had on this trip was a fire starter, just in case something happened. He said that he shouldn't have skied a peak that he'd never been to before, especially in whiteout conditions. With his daughter, especially. Yeah. Yeah, and Kelly should have had a mapping device on her own and more gear, just in case they were to get separated like this. She wouldn't have been so screwed and 
felt like she needed to spend all of her time in one spot. At least like an extra layer, a down jacket that is compressible, maybe Mm -hmm. a granola bar or something. (laughs) Well, it sounds like they had food and water, just he had the majority of it. He was taking the lion's share of the weight, and even though it was really good intentioned, it was a mistake, Mm -hmm. or that's what he said. Ed also says, I feel sincerely remorseful that I put people in danger. The one consolation I have is that the people that came looking for me are people like me. They love the mountains just like me, and they know the risk. So that's the story of Ed and Kelly Mulmer. I think it's very interesting. So backcountry skiing, obviously the most important gear is probably your avalanche safety gear. Yeah. Including a shovel, probe, and beacon. Even in a condition like this where they're like, well, the grade isn't that steep and it's pretty easygoing. He still fell off a cornice. So it just, he could have been buried in snow anyway. I don't know. It's just good to have those things. So having that GPS so somebody can find you mm-hmm. as well. They just happen to be so lucky that they had cell phone service. Oh my gosh, I know. I think they certainly would have died even if people realized that they were missing. Yeah. Because think about the amount of time that elapsed from the time that they called 911 to when they were actually taken off of that mountain. Yeah. Hours and hours. Yeah. 19 hours of Kelly being alone. <laughs> Pretty cool that she goes backcountry skiing with her dad anyway. Yeah. Just because it sounds like a lot of work. I don't know if I could have been convinced to do all of that when I was 16. Let so. me just tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you. I know Let that you can have done Maybe now, yeah, but not at that age. Yeah, and starting at 14. But anyway, if you guys are thinking about going out and backcountry skiing, uh, would recommend Avalanche Safety Course. Absolutely. For Maybe sure. more than one. Yeah, and it's like Ed was saying – Probably don't go to a place that you're not familiar with. If it's the first time, if you're wanting to go out, probably go with someone who's familiar with the area before, you know, it's tempting to go take an adventure and find something that you haven't done, but take somebody who knows their stuff. Yeah. And also the other thing, the other thing is just to continuously improve your knowledge about backcountry skiing and whatnot because even if you've done a course or two it's something you have to continuously re-educate yourself Mm -hmm. yeah and there's always new gear it's probably not a bad idea to use some gps software like they had like that strava app i don't know much about it myself but i'm pretty sure that you can download maps of the area so you can see where you've been and where you're going which is so important And also, I guess if you could fall off a mountain, make sure you're watching it. Yeah. The other thing is I would think about like a spot device or who else makes those devices? Garmin maybe. Yeah. So you can communicate even when there isn't cell phone service. Tell me what a spot is. Well, I'm not advertising for spot, but basically. (laughs) Unless you want to sponsor us. (laughs) I don't have one, but I think it would be nice to have. Basically, you can give GPS coordinates to people that know that you're out there and Mm -hmm. send them text messages and some of them I think you can use sort of as a satellite phone yes so if your cell phone doesn't work you still have a way of contacting your people Mm -hmm. although you do have to pay a monthly price for it so it could be pricey but I think some of them are more advanced than others 
for instance, I know a gal who went off the road in the national park kind of on an off season. So it wasn't a well-traveled time Mm -hmm. and she had a spot device, which kind of sounds to me like a life alert. (laughs) Yeah. You just push the button. I can't get up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she had fallen off the road and she couldn't get back on. So yeah. (laughs) So pretty much. Yeah. It alerted people that she needed help. And so I think it was a ranger that ended up coming out and pulling her car up onto the road, but just crazy. And if she hadn't had it, she may have been completely screwed. Yeah. She would have been either waiting around for someone to maybe drive past or she would have to start hoofing it. Anyway, not a bad idea to have one of those. Yep. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us this week. If you love us, which I'm sure you do, right? How could you not love true survival? Yeah, well, at least try to love us. Try to love us. <laughs> at least tolerate us. Yeah, just tolerate us. That's, that's what I do with Tessa. I just, I just tolerate her. I, just use it. <laughs> I mean, if you're just going to tolerate us, please rate, review, and, you know, constructive criticism. Tell us what it's you want to okay. hear. Yeah. yeah. Don't be mean, though. And also tell a friend. Tell a friend. That'd be awesome. Yeah, so join us next week. Please stay alive until then. Yeah, have a great week. Yeah, and we love you. (laughs) (laughs) Most importantly. Yeah. We love you. All right, guys. Bye. Bye.